Welcome to the ACFCS Financial Crimecast, a briefing featuring the latest news, analysis, and guidance from across the financial crime spectrum. I'm Brian Spodekindle, VP of Product Development with ACFCS, and on this episode, we're sailing on the stormy seas of synthetic ID fraud. Our captain is Amanda DuPont, public records product expert with Thomson Reuters, and many of you avid listeners out there may recognize her from former podcasts. We're always thrilled to have her back. From fraudulent new account openings to the creation of synthetic corporate entities, both the quantity and creativity of fraud schemes has soared in recent months. Amanda has been experiencing it firsthand. She has some stories and case studies to share with you, and I'm sure many of our listeners have been on the front lines of this as well. So I'm excited to speak with her again. It's always a pleasure having her on the program. So Amanda, thanks very much for being here, and thanks for sharing your experience and insights on a topic that's been high on the list of concerns for a lot of our members. Yeah, great to be here. Well, let, let's kick it off with uh, some of the trends that you are seeing. You sit in, in kind of a unique vantage point. You work with financial institutions, um, fintechs, you work with retailers, opening accounts. So from your point of view, what trends are you seeing in synthetic ID fraud? What's happening out there um, in these various areas? Yeah, really good question, Brian. And I actually was excited to talk to you because I'm trying to remember the last time you and I had a conversation around this. And we do talk about this. But so where I sit, I'm essentially, you know, the vendor who would have everyone's data, right? Do you exist in public records? Do you have a public record footprint of some capacity? Um, And it's been so interesting in the last year the amount of unique frauds I've encountered in all those audiences and, and how they're manifesting themselves is, is like you want to take a master class in how they're doing it because they're doing some really unique things. Um, so just in the last 10 days, I want to anecdotally share two accounts that, you know, had some really massive fraud attacks and how they, you know, picked them up and the clues we're seeing. Because, you know, when you listen to podcasts, you almost want to have what's a takeaway? What could I do to help kind of solve this or see it? So I want to kind of give some ideas of ways to spot it and probably stop it. But here's a fascinating recent example. A a customer in the financial services space came to us. They use clear in various capacities, but they said they detected a massive influx. And let's think about the unemployment fraud, right? All those kind of stolen identities to create money and get benefits, people's identities were stolen. I'm I'm in my head thinking of that as I'm hearing what's happening at this financial services. And they said, uh, bevy, like 5,000 customer account openings were being made. Um, Now, what detected fraud instantly was the bot attack was way too fast, right? You can't fill out all the PII at an account opening in seconds. And when things like that are hitting our financial services space, they really need tools to detect that's probably bot-created fraud. But all of the IDs were good. Like all of that data was not fake in the sense that, you know, sometimes you hear speakers say, oh, I made a synthetic and it passed through a data aggregator. That's not really aggregators, at least us. We'd instantly flag like a shallow file. I'm a pretty old person. My kids are in their 20s. Um, If only one record existed on me and it was created a year ago, 
right? Like in 2020, Amanda DuPont suddenly had this, you know, credit bureau record. Well, my software is going to say that that looks synthetic. That's way too shallow. There's just too much analysis we put on that kind of person. But, you know, the point I'm getting at is these were not that. These were people's real data that was just hijacked. So as I'm looking at it, and this is going to be my third example, Brian, in the last few weeks, as I'm looking at it, I think I've told you, I think you do fraud, like how you stop fraud at a, a synthetic identity or even real identity is you have to have a holistic approach. We talk about this, like more is more. Is there data validating into records? Does their um, digital footprint look reasonable, right? Kind of like that holistic look at a customer. Well, here's what I figured out in these recent fraud attacks, which I really do think are organized crime, doing penetration testing, you know, can I get my accounts opened um, and start doing some money laundering? But what stopped it cold in this case was, you know, the social was matching to the person, was matching to the, um, the address, the date of birth, all of that was really hijacked data. But the one thing that was 100% easy to stop the fraud was taking the phone number they're putting in their two-factor authentication process. And we ran a test in all these examples just to see if the phone really, you know, in my example, your example, does it, is that phone held by Brian? Is that phone held by Amanda? What records does that phone relate to? And when we did that, and it was a live test, so we could kind of look live at the phones. And that was the piece, I'll tell you, a bunch of the phones were I don't even know what they were doing with them, but I honestly said to somebody, I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is your criminal because quite a few few phones were in one person's name. Um, a lot were burner cells, you know, that they just looked like they were paying as they went, but they didn't show any public records that, you know, that phone had ever been used in. And so it's just interesting to see these massive penetration attacks of everybody's real data and, um, you know, but for kind of doing that more is more analysis on it. And, and in this case, realizing can, can a human really, you know, create accounts in the manner some of these accounts are coming into the large financial services. But, you know, that was just shocking to me to see how much good data was out there and trying to be opened with. Um, so that was one recent example, but I have another interesting case study I think you'd think is really, really interesting too. And it's on the opposite side of the table. It's the merchant. So recently I was talking to a big uh, payments kind of player, right? Who needs to uh, verify their merchants. Just think of when you go into any online site, right? You, you basically want to verify your merchants, not a fraudster, right? Like you have a, if you're going to white label them in any capacity or associate, associate the, yourselves with them. You kind of want to make sure you know who they are. And so this particular example was they came to us and said they knew their merchants. They felt comfortable with kind of how they were doing their onboarding and their due diligence process. And they had a lot of sophisticated um, digital analysis tools like this email looks legitimate. We are seeing we're not seeing fraud complaints on this this merchant, you know, more of the digital, I almost think of it versus kind of how they exist in records. So this is just another one of those kind of, ooh, I bet you didn't think that was really your merchant behind the scenes there. So I said, I, I go, that's great. 
you need to do those tools, but you probably want to know who's the person running the merchant, right? Who's the company? Who is the principal? These are just probably good reputational steps to take. So I said, could you at least share the principal's first name, last name, address? Are you gathering that level of information? And they had it. Um, so we you know, put them against kind of a public records analysis to say who they could be. And it was so funny. I said, I'm glad this merchant is meeting fraud checks from like what your software is detecting, right? Like your digital, they're not getting consumer complaints. But I go, this is who's behind that, that you know, email. Um, because when we looked at the principal's name and address, I was able to say <laughs> this subject who had a Russian first and last name, just got released from prison for racketeering and stolen identities and all sorts of other scary crimes. And from what I could tell, had around five or six social security numbers that they like to use, that they had kind of created their own first party synthetics. And I go, that's, I just want you to realize that's likely who's behind this, you know, well-performing merchant. Um, and they had to really rethink, you know, do, back to that 360 do I really know everything I'm dealing with? And so, Brian, I could just go on and on with the kind of fraud that we've been seeing in the last year. They're getting very creative um, of kind of hiding who yeah. they are. Yeah, it is It is very interesting to hear. I mean, just the, the tools at the disposal of the fraudsters and the increasing uh, creativity, as, you, as you're saying, that they're, they're bringing to the table. But, you know, this point about, using all the data available to you um, is I think really important because it's it's something that is is key to um, being able to counter the constantly evolving fraud typologies that we're seeing right and it's still a it's still a challenge at a lot of institutions other organizations in part because they don't necessarily have access to the data but in part because I think there's still a you know a reliance on a few checks and then if they come back clean, you're good to go, right? Um, and so moving away from that mentality of like, here is the checklist of five items or whatever it is, um, you know, and part of that goes back to like customer identification regulations that have sort of four core things you're supposed to check. And if they're good, then you're good to go, right? So uh, it's both a, you know, a regulatory challenge, but also a mindset challenge as to, um, as to what you're looking for in your data on customers. Um, agreed. Agreed. A hundred percent. I think it's funny when we talk about customer identification, right? There's kind of the the old school collect those four pieces of data and do a documentary or non-documentary check, right? Did you get a document from the customer or did you go against something like myself? Clear. Did they have public records that validated to them? So back to we could spend the whole 20 minutes just on the PPP loan fraud. But I was talking to a customer that was looking, they, they hadn't been, you know, they, they weren't using my tool per se. We were just having a discussion and they said, you know, they had been gathering IDs, right? That, like, because now there's a lot of discussion on can getting the ID and doing some analysis on the ID, can that fully solve it? And here's the problem. They're just so good. Um, I finally had my son hit 21, so I don't have to worry about, you know, the fake IDs he was using. But they all scanned. They all made it through, you know, the scanning and bar checking and liveness checks and all that kind of stuff. And this reminds me of this customer saying, somehow 
my showing an example of where we uncovered fraud, this being, you know, the account I was talking to, led others in my underwriting team to say, that ID looks familiar. And they found in their repository of data, three driver's license, all passed through kind of their software, same photo, same, you know, it would be like my ID with three different names on it. Um, they're all finding that now, right? You have to have technology to actually dedupe. Did we get that driver's license before? So, and unfortunately they funded all three of those. Um, and we can talk <laughs> about the funding rules of PPP and that's just a whole nother funny conversation. Um, but yeah, that was another example where they sent me, they're like, can you at least have told us if she, it was a woman, would she have validated against records? And, and she didn't because it was made up data, but she had, a very decent um, document-based license, you know, just out of three yeah. different names and locations, and she got three loans out of the deal. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, a, a fantastic example of how, you know, just relying on kind of the core things you're you're supposed to do is, is often not enough. Um, and yeah, it might pass the regulatory requirement, but then it exposes your institution to all this loss from the, the bad loans that you're giving out to a fraudster, right? So there is absolutely a cost, even if it is still technically, uh, you know, compliant. Um, so I, we've been looking at this a little bit from the institution side and, you know, the retailer side, the private sector, but let's talk a little bit about public sector um, and government. And you've mentioned yeah. a couple of times the Paycheck Protection Program loans, unemployment loans. Absolutely want to talk more about that um, because there's been huge fraud there. And there have been some efforts that I've seen, you know, anecdotally for uh, the government to get a better handle yeah. on, you know, on identity. Uh, what are you seeing? What have you seen, you know, at all levels government agencies start to do around identity? So fascinating conversation. We could do an entire webinar on this topic because witnessing, let's just take Paycheck Protection Program as starters. And when it first hit, we were, I remember talking, you know, these are emergency scenarios. People need business loans. We're going to do a live experiment and fast funding and see real time how good we are at catching fraud. But let's face it, there was guaranteed payments to lenders, right? They, they had incentives to do it. Um, and guaranteed forgiveness. And so you have this like easy, you know, fraud goes to the lowest common denominator of what they can go after. But in the first two rounds of PPP loans, there was very little even front end spot checking. I, I remember writing it about, about it about a year ago thinking, you know, I'm already spotting massive problems with this. Let's process it and back check it on the back end. So by the third round, you saw the government, and this is in early 2021, it put together, it would not issue a loan number until it did some, you know, some actual vetting of the applicants. And so things like as simple as did the company have corporate filings formed after the date of the PPP loan program? Did, is the subject, are they sitting on the government debarred list? All the things I thought, you know, I hope the lenders are checking. I hope the government's checking. These are easy things to see. They did have that in place. So for that last round that had the lowest amount of funding, anecdotally, I can share how much lenders struggled with things kicking back, Brian. They weren't just going through. You needed to get an affidavit to show your subject was not in fact the felon the government had pinned to a fraud offense. Um, and so you saw technology come into play by the end. 
And I keep thinking we're going to see, you know, massive amounts of fraud uncovered there. But what if that had protection had been brought in nine months earlier? You know, how much could have been stopped there? And on the PP, uh, on the unemployment side, interestingly, now we're seeing everywhere um, the state, the local, the federal government start to think about how can I put identity proofing processes in place, right? Because um, I think I shared once, maybe I didn't share it with you, but I remember both my husband and I, myself were um, made, you know, fake unemployment claims because it was self-certified. If you had the data, you could self-certify you were unemployed. Now we're seeing um, requests for information, pricing, what have you on how do you identity proof at an, you know, any level here? So we knew it would happen. Um, I think everybody's learning as we go that you need to have some identity proofing steps, um, self-certification in persons and businesses and guaranteed lender payments. That, that, might, that might need more friction in the future. <laughs> Yeah, if I absolutely. Have to I, I, and I think it's, you know, maybe if, if you if we if I can be optimistic for a minute, it's one of the actual positive outcomes of the pandemic and um, uh, the fraud we saw during it is is this upgrade to identity and identity proofing, because the reality is unemployment, you know, although not and and government to a lesser extent, government lending. Um, to businesses has been the target of fraud for a long time. Um, and so, you know, this is not necessarily anything new. It's just the scale of it is obviously much larger. I've seen estimates of, you know, 75 billion in fraud losses for PPP. I've seen estimates ranging from 68 billion to above hundreds of billions for um, unemployment. So, I mean, I don't think anybody knows the true number, but uh, tremendous scale of fraud loss. And, you know, now at least we have a chance to implement some positive, you know, positive things that in the future will prepare us for uh, uh, to be better placed against, you know, against fraudsters. So uh, that's, a, yeah, that's, that's a good thing. Yeah, I hope we don't have to go, go through, you know, the pain of the 2020, the world <laughs> essentially had to shut down, right? The world had to shut down and we have to learn real time how to do things. There is lessons learned, and, and I constantly am an optimist. I'm like, look, there are tools. It doesn't even have to be my tool, but there are ways to um, be fast, but proceed with caution simultaneously, you know, and do those checks. And um, the, the most fascinating part of our world is we get to see it real time evolve, right? It evolves every day. Like, I'm always like, huh, I didn't think that was a way to commit fraud, but it is like, I remember when I didn't think somebody would just kind of, you know, resurrect old companies, but then it made a ton of sense in the PPP loan program to, to find mm -hmm. kind of companies and use those, you know, people were just hijacking companies to get PPP loan processed. Um, so just, there'll be fascinating case studies that come out, but um, yeah, the takeaway is I think we're learning if you have an arsenal of tools and you don't just kind of think of it as a check the box, you probably can stop it cold, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And to your point about uh, companies being revived, I think, you know, one of the new ish trends that I heard 
of during the pandemic was this issue of like synthetic entities, right? Synthetic identities of individuals been around, you know, for a while. People are increasingly accustomed to them, but the idea of a synthetic legal entity, corporation, or that type of thing, um, may be newer, and therefore people may be a little bit less skeptical of a corporation approaching them for account opening or lending or whatever the case may be, and the corporation being an entirely you know fictitious entity or a real entity or a combination of real and, and fake data. Um, so I'm wondering if you've seen that trend as well, the synthetic entity in addition to synthetic identities. Yeah, yeah. We have been spending a lot of time studying that. Like I know in our, you know, we do essentially analytics against records, right? So if I formed a company, can I tell you information on that company? So flags were starting to like just put up there as companies under 90 days old. Company has change in ownership structure. Things where you don't have to hunt for it, right? Let's read the Secretary of State filing and tell you things you probably need to know on it. Um, company under a year old. But here's the one that's really been fascinating that we, we made sure we did. Company was previously inactive and now active. Like, what was that gap? Mm. Um, mm -hmm. But your, the ability to just go find something. I mean, what are synthetics? It's basically... Here's something real. Here's something fake. I'm going to own it and I'm going to pretend it's mine and act like it's mine and trying to solve all that. You know, like it, it comes down to that merchant. He looked like a good paying merchant, the principal, right? If you ID check the principal and you got enough PII on the principal, you realize you're dealing with a Russian mobster who steals identities and just got let out of jail. <laughs> That's who was running it, right? Like, <laughs> um, uh, these are stories I could, you know, tell you over drinks any night of the week. But um, <laughs> it's finding all that. It's finding all that analysis. And and truthfully, the one thing, remember when beneficial ownership came out? I remember all these customers telling me this. I, re I remember telling them what they had to ask for to know a customer, know a merchant, know a business. You have to ask who's running that company. And you want to actually vet them probably to really feel comfortable you know them. And they'd come back and say, we can't ask that. That's just offensive. Like, I mean, you probably heard it too. Like, how can we ask for those people running the company? Um, but <laughs> these are why you ask. These are why you ask so you know this kind of information. Yes. Yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, uh, to go back to the point we kind of started up with, started off with, and maybe we'll, we'll kind of wrap up with this. You know, we've been talking quite a bit about synthetics. But there's a lot of challenges around fraud that are, isn't necessarily a synthetic identity. To your point, there's tremendous amounts of real data available through data breaches. Um, and I'm wondering, from your perspective, and, and maybe there's no answer to this question, maybe it's kind of all of the above, but you know, what's, what's kind of the biggest challenge that you're seeing, um, financial institutions and other organizations that you work with, um, is it the synthetic side where it's, you know, a real tax ID number and then a bunch of fake in data in most cases? Or is it real data stolen through breaches that's being, you know, used for account opening, obtaining lines of credit, that type of thing? Like, where where is the biggest challenge and how are you seeing organizations kind of address both those sides of the house, so to speak? 
Well, funny, one um, financial services account told me during COVID, they saw no synthetics. They're like, guess what? Synthetics left us, Amanda. They're all getting their their fake money out of the PPP. I mean, out of unemployment. You know, they're not coming to me for that fraud. And think about that. That makes sense, right? They're not trying to steal an account takeover when they can just go file and get unemployment. Um, so they really said, we feel comfortable. We saw a stop gap there. But I do feel like I'm hearing a lot of, um, and I, this is where I'm thinking out loud with you, Brian, is it to, you know, launder the funds they have, but they're seeing, we're seeing a lot of hijacked data trying to become real accounts. And I'm starting to just think out loud, why is that playing? We just look at all the money that just got grabbed. Now you have to do something with it, bank it, do something with it. Maybe I'll be honest, the investment community is starting to see some of this. So, you know, it, it, follow the money, as they say. Um, I'm seeing real people's data uh, trying to be used to make account openings. And this month alone, I feel like I've seen a lot of it. Yeah, and it makes total sense. It goes, you know, this this kind of surge in mule accounts um, that we've seen during the pandemic goes hands in hands in that, right? And and those have been both real individuals and synthetic individuals that at least I've heard of. So there's there's absolutely a demand for, you know, accounts to just move funds and act as intermediaries once the, the funding has been obtained. So uh, this has been a fascinating conversation, Amanda, as always, and uh, so many so many threads to pull on, just as uh, those on the compliance side have to pull on the many threads available to them to take on this problem. Uh, so it's, it's, it's been really interesting. Thank you for both the perspective on fraud trends, as well as some practical advice on tips, tricks, ways that institutions and others could use to address it. So uh, thank you. Thank you for the uh, time and thanks for the insights. Yeah, great talking. Thank you. And with that, we'll wrap it up. Please join us again for another episode of the Financial Crimecast. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many of your other favorite podcasting platforms. Have a great rest of the day, everyone, and thanks for listening. 